Check that mail sack, check it good. Check that mail sack, oh you should. The SLS sponsored by Vegemite, where we've got all the B vitamins you can handle, cunt. All you movie junkies and cinephiles, it's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, one and all, to episode 223 of the SLS cast. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Winchester Super Short Magnum episode of the SLS cast, because it turns out that uh, there is actually a uh, .224 caliber rifle cartridge. It's created by Winchester and Browning. Uh, it's actually based on the shortened version of a Winchester short magnum case. And what is it called? The .223 WSSM, which stands for, again, Winchester Super Short Magnum. And with that wonderful little bit of rifle cartridge knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. That opening was very conservative of you, Matt. Rifle mm. cartridge episode. But hey, do you know yes. what time of the year it is? Um, It's the time of year where everybody's still recovering from springing forward. It's spring break. It's the week of... Uh, it's the week of St. Patrick's Day. I, I'm out. It's it's many it? things. It's many things. It's not only is it the time of year where everybody is confused. Should I wear shorts today or should I wear pants? Should I wear slacks? At least in LA, it's a little bit more complicated. Do I wear tennis shoes or do I wear sandals? Not only is it about dress and how crazy now the weather, it's either warm or cold, depending on where you're at, or both if you're on the West Coast. But this is the time of year when the discussion of abolishing the time change occurs. Everybody's going to start bitching and complaining, or have already began bitching and complaining about getting rid of daylight savings. And uh, it's going to fizzle out until six months or seven months, whenever the next daylight savings happens. So, uh, yeah, it's that time of year. Yeah, I think I, I I truly don't think that anything's ever really going to happen with daylight savings time, mainly because um so many people look forward to fall back that <laughs> that that they're willing to forgive the you know day or two that they're all pissed off about that Sunday time change. So yeah. I don't think it'll ever go anywhere. Unless you're in Arizona, because Arizona just said, fuck all y'all motherfuckers. We're doing our own thing. And <laughs> they have no daylight saving time at all. So, Have they always been like that, or is that something more recent that they... I want to say within the last 30 or 40 years, they just decided to say screw it, which makes it really difficult because... You never know, especially when you're not in the same time zone as them anymore. It's now nearly, uh, so like for us, so are we, are we back on with them or are we hour ahead of them again? I think we're an hour ahead of them again because we sprang forward and they didn't. So, and I think we catch up with them or something. I don't know. It's all fucked up. Do they have watches and clocks and calendars in Arizona or? 
Do they still use Sundial? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe they just weren't fans of Benjamin Franklin. I have no idea. <laughs> um, the inventor of Daylight Saving Time, by the way. Really? No, it was uh, a way to uh, compensate for the growing season because farmers needed the additional time to grow. Now farmers are like, fuck that shit. We like to sleep too. Yes. Good old corporate farmers. Just like in Logan. Corporate farmers. What have you been up to this past weekend? Or week? Or weekend? I mean, if you're... Um, not... Um, not, not honestly, not really a whole lot. Just gearing up uh, for spring break. We're on spring break now, and um, that's 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 pretty much it. Just schoolwork and whatever else. Are you gonna go party in South Padre? Oh yeah, you know, let's take my seven thousand pound ass out there. I could lay on the beach and eat a hot dog, and someone could go, there she blows! And so, <laughs> um, I can totally see you being like the ruler of the of the slip and slide. The grease slide. <laughs> yeah, I, I could be the... Uh, uh, I would definitely be, for distance, I would be the champion. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, did Anyways, you hear about? No, honestly, that, this has been a really dead week for me. So, did he hear about what? Well, I read something, uh, and I'm going to misquote it completely. I'm sure. I don't remember if I posted it on Twitter or Facebook or whatever, but I was reading something about they're calling you know like the millennial generation and Generation RX and all that stuff. Well, they're current. Some people are calling current uh, the current generation or whatever. Generation idiot, because a number <laughs> of college kids in certain parts of the country, I'm just going to keep it a little bit broad so I'm not attacking every single college kid that likes to take part in spring break. Apparently, they use like their federal grant money or their state funded money or whatever, basically taxpayer money to fund their spring break drinking and their spring break trips and all that stuff. So apparently that's that? like a widespread issue. You're you're not supposed to do that. That's that's oh man. <laughs> Guess I better go return the keg. You know. So yeah, that's terrible. No, I mean uh, you, they. I guess they just. I mean, uh, the, the simple fact of the matter is that unless you a somehow advertise that you're doing it, um, most people will never know what you're really spending your student loans on. Uh, and your and, and they but they tell you 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 have to like sign an affidavit or digitally signature it or whatever they're doing now that says you're only going to spend it for school stuff and that does count I mean and and so like computers and clothes food um, rent car notes so so I mean you can still you can spend the money on material things and stuff things that allow you to go to school but I I'm still having struggling with the idea of why South Padre drinking or wherever you're going, Daytona Beach, what have you, um, for spring break, how that enables you to go to school, I guess. But I'm sure there's somebody creative enough out there to get away with it. So, Well, I think their tastes have become more expensive also for these young hipsters, these college hipsters these days. It's not about Coors Light. It's not about Bud Light. It's not about uh, Bush beer or whatever. Now it's like Lagunitas, 
Racer 5, you know, all these hoppy drinks that are more expensive. And, you know, you throw in kegs and holy shit, those kegs are significantly more expensive than Milwaukee's Best. That's not how it's pronounced. It's called Milwaukee's Beast. Milwaukee's Beast? (laughs) Not because of the beer, but because of the aftermath. The beast (laughs) that comes out of your stomach. That's right. And uh, I like uh, up in the Pacific Northwest... They have a uh, really cheap, terrible beer called Hams, H-A-M-M apostrophe S, Hams beer. And um, everybody knows that is like the worst fucking beer known to man. And if you don't know, it's really easy to guess because their fucking mascot is a skunk. So you you have to know what you're getting into when you go for the cheap beer and stuff. But Because uh, I want to drink a beer called... Ham. <laughs> uh, anyway, so what about you, man? How, how was your week? We, you know, clearly mine was boring. How was yours? It was exciting. Uh, I went to the local uh, store and bought a three pack of toothbrush heads, and I finally realized that toothbrush heads are severely overpriced. Speaking of toothbrush heads, did you see my post? Uh, on Instagram and Twitter about how I spent $3 and saved my marriage. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I did see that. Yes. I just thought that was funny. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because because toothpaste is, of course, the backbone of every successful marriage. True, true. It just goes to show how people fight over, like, really stupid things, and then those really stupid things tend to add up, and people literally end up fighting, and they get, and that, you know, the little things turn into big things, you know? And, um, my, my wife is, uh, it's weird. She's, like, so OCD about so many different things. Um, and yet when it comes to toothpaste, she literally just claws the middle of a damn thing like a fucking bear or something and, you know, and just squeezes and, and that's how she, whereas I, I squeeze properly, evenly, gently. We're still talking about toothpaste, pressure. right? Yes. Yes. Okay. Toothpaste. Yes. From the bottom. Not to mention she likes Crest and I like Colgate. So, um, why fight with each other? Why fight with each other? Just spend three bucks, go and get yourself your own tube of toothpaste. Um, and depending on where you go, you might even be able to get two tubes of toothpaste for the $3. So, so one for your wife, the other one for your mistress, cause you got to keep them both happy. Well, my mistress uses Colgate. So this way, you know, don't, we don't worry about it. So oh, there you go. I'm, I'm picky with the mistress is what it is. <laughs> As you should be. I figure if it doesn't work out with the mistress, I can always get another mistress, you know, right? Is that, is that? That, is that not how this works? I, am I not supposed to spend the government money I get for college on my mistress? Is that wait? I'm totally confused here. Uh, you know. And did you meet her on spring break? Uh, anyway, or during spring break? <laughs> I did. I did while drinking some Lagunitas IPA. Yeah, that's what, uh, <laughs> that's what happened. <sighs> Anyways, all right. Well, what do you say we go ahead and check the old mail sack? Check that mail sack. Check it good. Check that mail sack. Okay. Oh, you should. Oh, I. Guess we got a new theme song. <laughs> All right. Well, we got some Twitter followers to mention right quick. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, you, of course, can do that by following us at the SLS cast. Uh, Tim has some follow up ones because apparently we got so many. Um, something happened in the email translation or whatever, and they were we got the notifications on Twitter, uh, but they never followed through to the email box. So Tim saw them and I didn't. 
you know, because, hey, we work together on these things. <laughs> so I'm going to do the first two, and then Tim's going to chime in with the rest that I've missed over the last, like, apparently two weeks. So my sincerest apologies for missing you guys on uh, and not doing the announcements already. But um, here you go. First up, we have got Two Dude Review. Yes, it is at the number two dude review com. Uh, this is actually a weekly podcast covering the 1001 movies you should see before you die. Um, which is really cool. I think, you know, at, at least you've got a beginning and an end to your podcast, uh, to the whole series. And if you're doing a film a week, it's going to take you a fuckload of a long time to get through that it's like a lifetime of podcasting so good call guys excellent uh apparently this is hosted by brian bradley and chad hamilton featuring karina dolhide or dolahide depending on how you want to say that because it's d-o-l-e-h-i-d-e so you have dolhide but it could be dolahide you know or dolahide even um but yeah and they are out of chicago illinois uh finally here on the email side that i'm seeing we have 365 Flix podcast also following us. They are at the number three, the number six, the number five Flix pod. And it is the 365 Flix podcast where we talk all things movie, TV, comics, and games. So boy, they, they are all set up. They've got like merchandise and the whole nine yards. So thank you so much to 365 Flix podcast and to dude review for following us. And Tim, Tim, please, mea culpa, mea culpa. Help me out. Who who have I missed? All right, I'm just going to run down uh, this little list of followers here. We have How Is This Movie? I was about to say Made, but no, it's just How Is This Movie? It's a podcast that covers the history of movies. Let's see. The next one I have here is How Many Fingers Followed Us. How Many Fingers is a podcast. It's a weekly drunk movie review podcast hosted by Joe Lomas and Mike King. Oh, thank God. <laughs> Thank God, because my my immediate thing is like, is this about optometry or is this about fisting? I'm not sure. And I'm so glad that you explained what that podcast is about. <laughs> Ooh, is there a fisting podcast? Because I think I'm we sure there is. Host one. Um, and the next up here we have the movie waffler. Dot com. Uh, I, I, I actually like this title, this uh, the name of this podcast a lot. The Movie Waffler. Of course, the official Twitter of the Movie Waffler. The web's tastiest movie site. Hashtag movies, hashtag film, hashtag cinema, hashtag reviews, hashtag TV. At the Movie Waffler. And uh, let me kind of scroll down here a little bit. Uh, see if we got anybody else. Leonida Dupree. A pop culture buff, extreme coffee specialist, entrepreneur, subtly charming alcohol lover, wannabe web aficionado, certified writer, and then also brain sandwich podcast, hashtag podcast, where the big questions get asked, as well as the insanely stupid ones. Uh, so if I missed, oh, okay, actually I'm coming across some more. No Ordinary Nerd followed us. No Ordinary Nerd is a podcast about branching out in geek culture and trying new things. We believe it's important to use this to help cope with anxiety. They're based out of California. So thanks again for the follow, guys. We do appreciate it. And uh, I'll pay more attention to this just in case Matt doesn't get any notifications on his end. 
Right on, right on. Okay, well now we get to the emails. Yes, and you of course can email us as well by sending an email to the show at slscast.com. So both of our emails this week are from Miss Diana. Uh, first one, the subject is, oh my Vegemite. Yeah, she says, hey, 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 boys. My mouth fell open agape as I listened to the show this weekend and you dissed my most loyal listenership. Ah, uh, I was forced to make it Sophie's choice. How do I make it? First I thought, oh, this is easy. Matt knows what Vegemite is and Tim doesn't. Team Matt! Then Matt blew it when he said he thought Vegemite was made of bean curd. Wrong! It's a yeast byproduct from beer production. And I love it! So, since Matt said it was disgusting and Tim said it sounds, quote, delish, end quote, it is, that even in jest, this makes me Team Tim! Seriously, love you both as in comparable brothers from other mothers. Hugs and kisses, Diana. And she also sent another email, very short one, uh, titled, the subject is Yummage. And she says, I eat this right off the spoon, teehee, Diana, XO. And it is a huge picture of a jar of Vegemite. <laughs> Proudly made in Australia since 1923. Oh, that's great. <laughs> it is, it is a blown up picture of a 400 gram jar of Vegemite. B vitamins for vitality. We inspired somebody to eat Vegemite. So if we Apparently can't she already did. I don't think show. we inspired it. I don't think we inspired I think she's saying that she has been eating this literally right off the spoon for longer than you know we brought it up. Maybe we need to reach out to them for sponsorship, you know? Yes, let's cast sponsored by Vegemite. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if we're going to do that, it's, you know, the SLS sponsored by Vegemite, where we've got all the B vitamins you can handle, cunt. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I said that wrong. You cunts. <laughs> anyway, all right, Diana, thank you so much. You know what? I can understand. I can. I screwed up. Uh, what, you know, what, I, I still stand by the fact that it's lard flavored ass, axle grease, but, you know, okay. <laughs> lard fable, uh, f- flavored, flavored axle. ass grease. Yes, oh. that too. I don't care. Um, but it's uh, the grease that Matt uses to I could to coat his, even let it go. It's his it's slip and slide. <laughs> it, it's, yes, that's how you get inertia. You see, it's the, you build an inertia with the Vegemite grease. Anyway, no, uh, I mean, like, I can even halfway understand people eating this stuff as a yeast byproduct from beer production if it got you drunk. But no, no, it doesn't even do that. So, <sighs> anyway. But seriously, Diana, thank you so very much. We love that there is actually someone out there who listens to the show that actually knows the obscure things that we talk about. That is fucking fantastic. Thank you for that, Diana. Really appreciate it. And again, if you would like to uh send us an email, that is again the show at SLScast.com. And of course, following us on Twitter by following at the SLS cast. So I think we are ready for some news. What do you say, sir? Sounds good. All right, folks, here we go. It's the news. (laughs) 
from me. All right, from, actually, you know what? No, I'm not doing that one first. I'm doing this one first, from Variety.com, by way of uh, Ma'ane Kachatorian. Uh, Avatar 2, delayed again. James Cameron says 2018 release, quote, is not happening, end quote. <laughs> <laughs> and in other, wow, never saw that coming news, audiences will have to wait even longer to return to Pandora. Director James Cameron revealed that the sequel to the highest grossing movie of all time worldwide will no longer be released Christmas 2018. The second installment in the planned five film franchise has been delayed for a third time after it was initially scheduled to hit theaters in December 2014. All right, so we are literally now looking at um, a delay. Uh, this delay is making it now four years, more than four years, into five years after it was initially supposed to be uh, released. The other three films were originally slated for their release during Christmas time 2020, 2022, and 2023. The director didn't mention whether the other sequels are behind schedule as well, but those releases will likely be affected too, as the films will be shot simultaneously. Cameron told the Toronto Star, quote, Well, 2018 is not happening. We haven't announced a firm release date. What people have to understand is that this is a cadence of releases. So we're not making Avatar 2. We're making Avatar 2, 3, 4, and 5. It's an epic undertaking. It's not unlike building the Three Gorges Dam, end quote. So, um, he, he does go on to, uh, talk about how long it's going to take like eight years and all this kind of stuff but and and i highly recommend that you read the rest of it because there's a little bit of inf interesting information but the crux of this article uh and again please variety.com by way of maane kachatorian um avatar 2 delayed again tim you surprised by this wonderful little bit of news <laughs> a little bit uh not, not, not really i guess yeah <laughs> I, I, I kind of I see this being the reason I see this being really important not only for James Cameron but the the movie studio as well. It's very important to make sure they get the, not only this movie but three other sequels or however many sequels there's going to be absolutely right. Disneyland wants them to do it right to get it right because they just opened up Avatar Land in Disney World, so. You know, if it means that they need to work more on the story, and it sounds like they're going to be shooting all of the sequels. Yeah, so Avatars 2 through 5 are literally one entire movie being shot all at once that will then be broken into four parts. But, see, it's things like Avatar Land opening up in Disney. Like, if I was Disney, I would be pissed right now. I'd be like... We're, we're already running the fuck out of steam. It's been like eight goddamn years since you came out with the fucking movie. Well, okay, it's now seven years, but whatever. And, you know, Pandora is only going to be able to keep things afloat so much because it's not like they can just give away the next movie or what the next set of movies are going to be about. And if they're going to be able to make Pandora something that can grow with the franchise, they need a fucking franchise to grow with. Otherwise, it's just going to get stale and people are going to be like, oh, well, that was neat. And then a year later, nobody's going to go there. So I, I don't know, man. I just, it's almost like, you know, and look, I know James Cameron's your boy. 
All right, and I am, <laughs> and I can't say I can't say that I haven't loved the fuck out of goddamn near everything he's done too in terms of uh, enjoying the movies. But I just really feel like <laughs> he's just fucking taking the money and run on this one. <laughs> I'm just hoping that he's trying to get it all right and. I, if that's the case and the movie actually comes out in two years, I'm willing to forgive it. But it's getting it's definitely getting to that point. It, it's been nine years and the, the Avatar people are still OK. What else could possibly happen to really screw them over nine years later? Unless this new movie or the new sets of movies pick up right after the first one left off or maybe they have kids i don't know it's but apparently according to him it's more of a family saga which i guess is kind of cool in its own way it's something different and the first movie they did a really good job at creating good characters like characters that i really actually cared for and i think that's why i enjoyed the movie as much as i did because there's a lot not to like about the movie like the uh, is it Sam Worthington, the main actor? He wasn't that great in it, but I sure as shit wanted him to pull through there at the very end, and it oh. was very effective. <laughs> so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm again, I'm just hoping they're trying to work out all of the, you know, the character arcs and the story arcs and all that stuff to make sure it actually covers five movies competently well all right excellent excellent okay well i'm gonna i got one more quick article here uh and then i'll turn it over to you sir from aceshowbiz.com uh with no direct attribution uh it says here danny devito may play a ringmaster in dumbo yes you heard that right danny devito may reunite with tim burton in dumbo the actor is in talks to join the disney live action movie to play medici medici is a ringmaster who runs a small circus which is eventually acquired by villain Vendemir. Um, and apparently this has also just been announced as well as like with Eva Green enjoying, enjoying it. Um, it says here that uh, Dumbo is one of the many live action adaptations which Disney is currently working on. Of course, the original version of Dumbo centers on the Big Eared Circus Elephant. Um, and then of course, um, the live action version is currently in the stage of development uh, with writer Aaron Kruger writing the script, who's also done The Brothers Grimm and, of course, Transformers Age of Extinction. Uh, Disney's other upcoming projects include uh, the this uh, this week's upcoming Beauty and the Beast, uh, The Lion King, Peter Pan, Maleficent 2, The Little Mermaid. Yes, I even saw a screenshot or something from... The, it looks like they've already started filming on that shit. Mulan, Snow White, and Cruella. So, um, yeah... I don't know if you have anything to jump in on, Tim. Uh, it's actually been kind of all over the place. I know this article from the 10th um, says May, but uh, there are other news sources I've seen that drop the May, and it looks like Danny DeVito will be playing the ringmaster in Dumbo. Uh, what do you think there, Tim? Will you be interested in seeing this live-action adaptation directed by Tim Burton? Yeah, I think it'd be interesting, but can you name the other Tim Burton-directed movie where Danny DeVito played a ringmaster? I mean, I don't know. I mean, other than Batman Returns, but I, I guess he wasn't really a ringmaster. He was just a penguin. Yeah, no, a, a, an actual ringmaster. I'll give you a hint. Ewan McGregor was in it. Albert Finney was in it. Oh, Big Fish? Yeah. Okay. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I'd get there eventually. I, I got, it took me a minute. 
I wasn't, you know, as soon as you said Albert Finney, I was with you. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I, I have fond memories of crying in my mom's lap after every time watching Disney's Dumbo as a young, as a young Tim, uh, because I really didn't want my mother take it away from me. So it's a very depressing story, and uh, you know I'm kind of wondering how that'll translate to a you know a more modern audience. But first up for me via the LAist.com, Mexican chain to make America great again by opening two movie theaters with indoor playgrounds. Written by Julia Wick, and it says this. On Tuesday, Mexico-based movie theater chain Sinopolis USA announced the forthcoming debut of America's first dedicated children's movie theater auditoriums where kids can play on a juggle gym inside of a movie theater while other people, presumably, hopefully, the parents of said children, watch a film. The first two theaters are headed to Southern California and will open next week in Pico Riviera in Vista, the latter of which is about 15 minutes outside of Carlsbad. The theaters will offer families, quote, a space to enjoy the magic of movies in an environment that caters to children, unlike anything the U.S. has seen before, end quote, according to a press release from the company. Sinopolis already has similar child-friendly theaters in Mexico, Costa Rica, Guatemala, and Spain. According to the LA Times, the company hopes their new kid-friendly theaters will help entice more parents to the theater and away from the comfort of Netflix and please stop throwing Cheerios at your brother at home. Prices will be about $3 more than a regular movie theater ticket. Each auditorium will have both a vibrantly colored play structure or jungle gym, as well as a special fenced-in play area for smaller children. Per Sinopolis, the play structures will be 55 foot long and 25 foot high and will include two slides, stationary pogo sticks, a scaled down merry-go-round thing, and quote, rounded hanging and quote, fun forest bags filled with foam. And I'll just end that right there. The article does go on for a couple more paragraphs. Again, that was via the LAS.com. Mexican chain to make America great again by opening two movie theaters with indoor playgrounds. I don't know how I feel about this because on top of having to spend $3 more to watch not only your kids, but a theater full of other kids going down slides playing on stationary pogo sticks, swinging on swings. And this slide, mind you, isn't just like a small little playground slide. This slide begins from the very top of the theater and travels down the side of the theater. I don't care what movie you're watching, because more than likely I would see parents take their children there so they can go see their movie. Because I don't understand the point of taking your kids to go see Despicable Me and just letting them do their own thing and not actually watch the movie. But why would you want to go and watch, say, a Quentin Tarantino movie? Not saying they're going to be playing Quentin Tarantino, but something that's very audience engaging. You know, the viewer, you're engaged in this movie. And having these little kids screaming right next to you, I don't know, like, to me, it just doesn't make too much sense, especially for an American audience. But, Matt, what do you say? Do you agree, disagree? Okay, I honestly get the idea. Uh, You want to go to a nice air-conditioned place where your kids can both be entertained mindlessly 
by a movie and or go and play um, around and kind of be able to jump between the two instead of mindlessly sitting in front of your TV and simultaneously attempting to make a mess in your house. Uh, also, you can, you as a parent can socialize with the other parents there and, you know, blah, 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 blah. So, I mean, I get it. I get the idea behind it. Um, I just think that it's, uh, as much as it's an interesting and, for me, sounds like a very niche kind of thing to do. Um, maybe you should just teach your fucking kids how to behave in a movie and then let them go play at the park after. <gasps> oh, but, um, yeah, I don't know. I, you know, I understand what they're going for. I just think it's stupid. <laughs> Via IndieWire.com, Terry Gilliam has begun shooting The Man Who Killed Don Quixote for real this time, written by Andrew Lapin. This is very good news, at least for me. A source close to the production confirmed to IndieWire that shooting began this week. Uh, and the article did come out on March 9th, so last week, shooting began. There's also the first photos from the set in the form of two Instagram photos, one from actress Rosie De Palma, who was to be the part of the movie's original production in 2000, and one from makeup artist... Sylvie Imbert, De Palma's post dated February 27th, is a photo of the cover of the film's screenplay caption, quote, Finally, here we are, end quote. Imbert's post dated March 6th shows her poring over a production grid for the film and is captioned, quote, Final touches last night, end quote. The original 2000 production was infamously delayed and waylaid by a variety of disasters, which were captured in the 2002 documentary Lost in La Mancha. In October of last year, Gilliam was supposed to go into production with leads Adam Driver and Michael Palin, but the shoot was delayed again days before filming. At the time, Gilliam explained to BBC Radio 2's Jonathan Ross that a, quote, Portuguese chap, end quote, failed to get the money together in time. The article does go on from there, and if you want to read more about it, I highly suggest you take a look at it. Um, but as a heads up, I believe Adam Driver is still in it, but instead of Michael Palin playing the famed Don Quixote, it's going to be Jonathan Price this time around. And this next piece of news I find to be very interesting because apparently it's been a long gestating thing, but I am just now learning about it. Via io9.gizmodo.com, Ridley Scott keeps trying to revive Gladiator, but he probably won't be a, quote, Christ killer, end quote. This is written by Beth Elderkin, and it says this. In an interview with Entertainment Weekly, Scott confirmed that he still wants to make a sequel to the 2000 Academy Award-winning film Gladiator, starring Russell Crowe. If the ever-delayed Avatar sequels have shown us anything, it's that it can be hard to continue a series after many years without making it a reboot. That's especially true when the lead character is dead and buried. However, it doesn't look like Scott's going to let that stop him. Quote, I know how to bring him back, end quote, Scott said. Quote, I was having this talk with the studio, but he's dead. But there is a way of bringing him back. Whether it will happen, I don't know. Gladiator was 2000, so Russell's changed a little bit. He's doing something right now, but I'm trying to get him back down here, end quote. It's unclear what exactly Scott means by, quote, bringing him back, end quote, since 
that's very open to interpretation. It could be Maximus's son sees him through a series of flashbacks or dream sequences, or the sequel could actually be a prequel like Prometheus. However, I'm secretly hoping Scott actually takes up Nick Cave's script, originally commissioned by Crow and Scott, and later rejected by the studio. And uh, the following is an actual sample from that script, via uh, courtesy of Birth, Movies, Death. And uh, this is a sample from that script, and I'll, I'll end this news there. Maximus enters the dim confines of the temple. Rain leaks through the broken stonework and runs down the walls. A large torch wheel hangs from the ceiling on a chain, and it swings and creaks. Seven dissolute old men, Jupiter, Apollo, Pluto, Neptune, Mars, Mercury, and Bacchus, cluster around a makeshift table, their heads craned towards each other as they mumble amongst themselves. Maximus stands before them. The old men grow silent. They look ill and diseased. The torch wheel creaks. Jupiter, fat, eyes boiled and bloodshot, sets in the center. End all quotes there. Again, that is a brief little snippet from a script written by Nick Cave from uh, some some time ago. Matt, what do you think about this? Uh, either of these two pieces. In terms of Terry Gilliam, I-, I am not going to believe a word of that until I can sit my ass down in a theater and see it. I still don't think it's... I think he thinks it's happening, but it's probably not really happening. So, that's that's... <laughs> Movies never get made. <laughs> um, uh, you know, no, seriously though, seriously though, if, if it really is happening and everything's really in motion and hopefully nothing else happens, then God bless him. He's only been trying to get this done for like, you know, longer than he's been alive. Um, in terms of the gladiator thing, see, it's, it's, it's pretty clear why they're not going to be able to do it, even with that script, because they're already doing God of War. And that's all I have to say about that. Cool. So. Uh, this is it for me. I got two very, very quick things to mention. One is from therap.com by way of Jeremy Fuster. Uh, Jordan Peele just became the first black writer director with a $100 million movie debut. Uh, basically, get out, right? Jordan Peele's, uh, he produced it, he wrote it, he directed it on a $4 million budget, and it's now at $111 million. So that is the first time that that's happened. So that's pretty badass. And then from the HollywoodReporter.com by way of Pamela McClintock, box office, Kong roars, but will it be loud enough? So basically, um, we've got a $61 million domestic for, uh, legendary pictures and Warner Brothers uh, in terms of Kong. Skull Island. Uh, but the article says that it's gonna need to make, uh, that's quote rumored, you know, whatever to make, uh, 500 million to break even. Well, um, okay. You, you should probably spend your money better. Um, I think it, I think it'll leak it out. Um, I, I, you know, based on what I saw, I'm, I think it'll make 500 million worldwide. Um, but, uh, yeah. Thought I would share that with you. Go and check those out. Again, HollywoodReporter.com by way of Pamela McClintock. Box office, Kong roars, but will it be loud enough? And TheRap.com by way of Jeremy Fuster. Jordan Peele just became the first black writer-director with a $100 million movie debut. Uh, Tim, if you'd like to chime in on those, that's great. Otherwise, my news is done. Alrighty, lastly here via IndieWire.com again. 
Will writers strike again? Here's what's at stake as WGA negotiations loom. This here is written by Andrew Lappin, and it says this... On March 13th, the Writers Guild of America will begin negotiations with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers for a new three-year contract, and some early reports indicate the union is prepared to strike if its demands are not met. It would be the first WGA strike in nearly a decade. The last one was the 100-day walkout that crippled the 2007-2008 television season, a period of calamity that forced major networks to reduce their episode orders, prompted some late-night shows to air without a writing staff, and fueled the risk of reality TV. WGA declined to comment on its negotiations, but veteran entertainment lawyer Mark Litwack cautions that things are still in the, quote, posturing, end quote, stage until negotiations actually begin. Quote, WGA is saying, we're going to strike if we don't get what we want, end quote, Litwack says. Strike or not, the television industry has changed dramatically in the past 10 years. The influx of capital spent on prestige shows and the rise of streaming services amid the collapse of the home video market means the WGA is playing a different game these days. So what's at stake for writers in the age of peak TV? Here's what to watch out for when negotiations start. I'm just going to read a couple of these key points here uh, because I do want you guys to go and check this article out via IndieWire.com and uh, look more into it. It's very fascinating. I remember when the 2007 strike happened. We had a very crummy Academy Awards and... A lot of shows weren't being made at the time. Uh, there was there were these long gaps in seasons, long hiatuses. I know my uncle, who's a prop master, had a difficult time finding work. Uh, but some of these key points here to uh, look out for when negotiations do start. Number one, the new world of new media. It sounds almost quaint. In 2007, a big sticking point of the negotiations resolved around writers seeking a larger cut of DVD residuals. Quote, the industry is changing, end quote, Litwick says. Quote, and one of the changes is that at least for the studios, home video sales have been going down and VOD in all its forms has been increasing, end quote. Under the WGA's current new media terms, writers for streaming video SVOD platforms are paid on a two-tiered system. Low-budget content, meaning short-form programming for mobile phones and sites like YouTube, commands a lower rate for its writers, while high-budget SVOD, Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon pays out at similar rates to traditional TV. The size of a VOD program's budget can also determine how the WGA classifies it according to Litwack. And that's very interesting, I thought. And then the second little point here, this is out of like five points, uh, but the second point they make here is that shorter seasons, bigger paychecks. Television writers are facing a new fact of production. The 22-episode season order has become increasingly rare. Studios greenlight shorter and fewer seasons with 10 or 13 episode series. Orders become the norm. Fewer episodes and seasons means fewer opportunities for lucrative syndication packages, which typically arrive at the 100-episode mark, but the syndication game itself is in jeopardy, as rerun ratings decline in the face of streaming sites that host the entire series of most shows. 
Last week, Variety reported a WGA member survey that identified reduced episode orders as a top concern. One proposal had writers earning a higher rate for shows that greenlight fewer than 22 episodes per season, though this seems unlikely to pass muster with the studios. So yeah, I mean, that's another interesting point here to look out for during these negotiations, because a lot of these writers, they're putting the same work into making these shorter seasons as they would be making these longer seasons because of contract negotiations, for example, or just contract lengths for these Netflix TV shows. So all this is very interesting. Again, you guys got to check this out if you are interested via IndieWire.com. Will writers strike again? Here's what's at stake as WGA negotiations loom, written by Andrew Lappin. And that's my news. Without further ado, that is the end of the news, and we shall go to... Discussions with Matt and Tim. This time on Discussions with Matt and Tim, Matt and Tim discuss the HoustonPress.com article by April Wolf. La La Land is a propaganda film. And now, discussions with Matt and Tim. Yes. This is an article from the Houston Press by April Wolf. All right, no, seriously. Okay. Um, so the gist of this article is trying to go into a, into deeper detail into why so many people are kind of irritated with Hollywood over their obsession and uh, gratuitous displays of affection and awards toward the movie La La Land. And in this and this piece is basically stating um, that by by examining the life and uh, livelihoods of two people struggling to make it in Hollywood in musical form um, and only focusing on two white people, they are perpetrating the propaganda of everything that is wrong with Hollywood today. And that's why people are so... um irritated by it even though uh and and it, and it has nothing to do with whether or not the director was intentionally trying to go out of uh out of uh, you know out of the way to do so or not because propaganda is propaganda whether you mean it to be or not okay i get where the author is coming from here uh, but i feel like she has she has an agenda to push um and i disagree with the way she couches her arguments um i i i just don't like this piece at all uh and um i don't i mean i don't really know where to go from here tim you 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 were the one who discovered this article and shared it and so what are your thoughts? What, 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 what about this article are you, did you find compelling and really wanting to discuss? I didn't find the article compelling whatsoever. In fact, I wholeheartedly 
dislike this article because oh, okay good but it seems like a trend with with certain writers like i don't know if it's, it's because they they're trying to meet a deadline and they have to push stupid articles like this out and i'm a big fan of the houston press like they put out some great material and so i it kind of catches me off guard when i see something like this being published through the houston press but I, a lot of people did this with the great wall for example when the help came out some years ago Articles like this popped up about how it's actually a racist movie. It's it's a white uh, it's a white agenda movie, for example. People had stuff to complain again with uh, hidden figures about it. How it's three African American women succeeding in doing wonderful things in a white man's world in 1960s USA during you know the NASA space program, but. Did they really succeed? You know, just like stuff like that. And I've noticed, and I don't know, Matt, if if you've noticed this as well. I'm sure you have. Just like an uptick of these really cynical opinion pieces. It just seems like people just don't care to look more into it. Well, okay. I The thing is, though, is that... What they do, it's really rather sinister, and it's kind of interesting. I, and and I think we we need to address a couple of things. One, um, I think it's fair to say that a proponent of this article would um, immediately say that our I don't I don't think this is vitriolic in any way, shape, or form, but I believe it would be couched as such based on the um, pejorative. <laughs> uh nature of this article that we are you know two white guys so we're part of the patriarchy and of course we would be offended by this um but i think it's important to note april wolf uh is a white woman who is writing this piece and she has a very clear like i said agenda um and i would i i think it's fair to say a left leaning uh, liberal, if you will, uh, depending on how you want to define that, because I know that we have a spectrum in political thought, which is good. Um, and I almost literally, especially as you were saying what you had, what, what you were just, when you were just sharing your thoughts on this, uh, because these pieces tend to come out at these times, um, that this is exactly the kind of person that was being parodied in Get Out. Um, and they make, they, they take things that are valid, which are, which, okay, so like, for example, um, let's see here. Okay. This from So it says here, La La Land, for its part, glorifies Hollywood. It offers no critique. Uh, it offers no critique of how, for instance, African-Americans are shut out of the industry. The film shuts them out itself. Here, Ryan Gosling's Sebastian is the man who knows the real jazz, while Keith, played by John Legend, is depicted as some kind of grifter who stole Sebastian's money and dreams and defiles jazz with an infusion of pop. The film presents Sebastian as authentic, Keith as not. The obvious irony is that African Americans invented jazz, but the film expects the audience to see Sebastian as the savior of the musical genre, the guy who fights against those pesky African Americans who might want to evolve the music more towards funk, they invented that too, instead of living as though music and life haven't changed since the 1950s. Now, 
Um, let's take that piece for example. That is ex- that is in point of fact accurate in terms of yes, African Americans invented jazz. Um, it was invented uh, in the New Orleans region of the United States back in the you know teens and twenties um, in what they called uh, and in brothels. That's where jazz comes from. It literally comes from brothels because to drown out the sounds of the fucking going on downstairs. You've seen it in westerns. The saloon guy playing the piano. It was designed not just to give someone to, you know, people to sing and stuff downstairs. It was to drown out the sounds of the fucking upstairs. And so in New Orleans and the like in the teens and twenties, they would play music and it was called jazz. And it was shortened and colloquialized to jazz, and we have jazz music. Now, what what uh, April here, I think, is missing is that in much the same way that you can say that you can make something, uh, that you can make something from something else, this is a way to turn a dynamic on its head. In which case you can show that while something is the way it is because of its historical precedence and value, things can be turned on their head to show that the opposite can be true as well. When it, and moreover, it can be shown to be done in a, uh, I think it kind of missed it was kind of a bit of a swing and a miss, but it can also be done in a racially neutral way, which is to show that it's not just a yet another person. Oh, look, yet another black jazz man who thinks, you know, who's trying to be out from another, because these things become politicized. So instead we turn it on its head and show, look, what you think you know about someone who wants to do jazz, which is obviously going to be um Keith, Right is instead the person who is actually the one getting away with it and actually turning this into somewhere else where you have someone who would be traditionally in the role that Keith is in, which is Sebastian, struggling against that. So there are ways to actually make this mean something else, but because we want to purposely point it out and say, nope, nope, this is propaganda against, you know, against black people to make white people feel comfortable, written by a white person. This is the kind of stuff that pisses me off about articles like this. And Ryan Gosling doesn't even succeed in saving jazz music. I mean that's no. that, that's not, like that's such an insignificant part of the story itself. It's it's like it's a character trait. The music is a character trait. It's what drives his character, and I, I you know that that's what gets me. It's not like the entire movie is about he's trying to save jazz. He's trying to preserve jazz in a town that used to embrace jazz and embrace nostalgia. But it wasn't just jazz. He happened to be a, just a jazz pianist. But he embraced everything that was nostalgia, movies, going to the theaters, going to the old bars, dance clubs, you know, stuff like that. It wasn't, he, he's, he's not like this old, like trying to be like a black crooner or anything like that. You know, it's all about an appreciation. And the thing is, is that he doesn't succeed at the end. He succeeds in his own little way, but not to the point to where he's saving black music Turning something that's part of the movie and making it 
seem like it is something sinister, evil motives behind it, when there's not. John Legend's character played the guy, but was he a bad guy? Not at all. He was creating his own music, and that's how it is nowadays. That's what he does with his music. So, I, I don't know. It's, it's, it's like a commentary of what is happening now, and just so happens that it's Ryan Gosling who plays the jazz musician and yet still changes at the end of the movie. That's a bad thing, and luckily we agree that is not such a bad thing at all. Yeah. I mean, I, I really think, like I said at the beginning, I think that this, I think April Wolf had an agenda and she wanted to read into the art, into the movie to make it seem to be about her ways. Now, I'm not trying to say that the movie doesn't have issues and I certainly, um, and I, and quite frankly, I think City of Stars is exactly, um, the problem with, uh, with, with, with La La Land. That's not even the best fucking song. But because the people who run Hollywood are so, uh, they're, they're so enamored of a song that so exemplifies everything about La La Land, which is of course LA, that they let that one be the winner over Audition, which is clearly the better song. And I think gets more to the heart of the movie to begin with. Uh, even though it, it, it's at the end, but, um, you know, I, that's the problem with the movie. The subject matter of the movie, you can debate that till the cows come home and you can find, and as this article dictates, you can find anything you want to find wrong with it. And there are certain things that are, again, that are absolutely correct about this. Um, so, you know, so towards the end of the article, this is like the second to last paragraph. It says, of course, Chazelle only wants, quote, realism, and quote, when it suits his purpose. Because if this were reality, a man who can't manage money wouldn't likely uh, be able to open and run any kind of successful business, let alone a jazz club. And a woman who wrote and produced a bad one-woman show that nobody came to see would never get a casting call from that performance. Every aspect of the story seems to call out, quote, white people also have it hard, end quote, while showing us just how easy it is for them. Okay, so... That last sentence right there is exactly what's wrong with this article. Because, of course, realism was when it suits it. Because, yes, you're right. Most people who are bad with money don't necessarily uh, get to start successful businesses. And, yes, nobody who had a bad one, when, when clearly nobody shows up, you're not going to be able to get an audition from that. But, once again, this is a movie. This is why we have escapism. That's the point behind these things. Not because you want to look at it and then call out, quote, white people also have it hard, end quote, while showing us just how easy it is for them. As we recall, you know, do, does the relationship last in this movie? Is there any semblance of a true amount of closure for these people? No. There's a, there's a little bit of wanderlust in the last few minutes of the movie where a kind of a what if scenario gets played out. But you don't know if that's truly going on in both of their heads or if they're just staring at each other and like, well, I'm happy for them and that's it. These are the things that make movies good and make movies great. But when you want to tie it to your specific agenda, I have a problem with that. 
But then again, I am probably the antithesis <laughs> of her intended audience. I think so. so. I, I think you're absolutely right. But if you would like to find out about this article yourself, of course, HoustonPress.com uh, by April Wolf. La La Land is a propaganda film, so yay. And I don't know. Is there any, any anything else you wanted to add on? To I'm it, I'm actually surprised uh, we were able to talk about this this long. So no, I, I think we're good. I think we're set. <laughs> Very good then. And that brings us to the close of another edition of Discussions with Matt and Tim. Be sure to tune in next week when the bonus segment will be I'm the only one who hated it. Thank you again for listening to Discussions with Matt and Tim. All right. Yes, that is the end of the bonus segment. And now it is finally time for... The Movies! And this week's movies are... Kong Skull Island, A United Kingdom, and... The Salesman. Where would you like to start, sir? How about The Salesman? The Salesman. All right. Uh, 2016 Iranian drama film directed and written by Ashgar Farhadi. I'm sorry, Farhadi. Uh, And basically this is about a married couple who perform Arthur Miller's play Death of a Salesman on stage when the wife is assaulted. Um and of course, husband is now trying to figure out who the fuck did this and what it means. And of course, this actually kind of, uh, shows a updated and yet unique parallel to the story of, uh, death of a salesman. Now, uh, just real quick so that you understand what death of a salesman is, um, it's basically a a a play uh about a guy named Willie Loman and he's kind of dying <laughs> he's basically dying and he's trying to convince uh you know both himself and his son you know that he didn't waste his life okay uh that that his life had purpose and his life had meaning while he's on his deathbed hence death of a salesman um the contrast in this movie is we have an actor who is playing Willie Loman in Death of a Salesman, um, and then his world dies because his wife is attacked. And now he has to find the meaning of his life, and he has to define his life and say, no, 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 my life has value, my life has worth, because I can move on from this. And what happens when the rest of the world doesn't, want you to move on from this so these are the ideas that are at play in this movie i think that i think that the movie's most tremendous value is in these ideas it is in the actual um uh way that it invokes the viewer to be able to compare and contrast and i also think that it's a bit of a weakness of the movie because it really depends on you actually having knowledge of Death of a Salesman. Um, 
And while I think the majority of people have at least kind of understood it in pop culture reference, um, you know, you'll hear the name Willie Loman, you'll hear Death of a Salesman, you'll, you know, and, and how it's just been overdone and, and, you know, over the last 50 years. Um, not a lot of people today who go to movies and casually and have fun and are into the pop culture of today would really understand that it's not really part of that zeitgeist. So I think that kind of hurts the movie a little bit. Um, but the only other thing that I felt really kind of knocks the movie is that, um, in Ahmad search, Ahmad and Rana are the married couple. Ahmad is playing Willie Loman on stage. Um, even amongst his, uh, students and stuff, cause he's also an instructor at the drama place where they do the play. Uh, he's known as, you know, they call him the salesman or whatever. But, um, so, and Ramon, and, uh, Rana is the woman who is his wife and she's the one who's assaulted. Um, I feel like instead of, succumbing to the powerlessness that is the situation that Willie finds himself in. Here we have a man who refuses to be emasculated by this, uh, by what's going on in his life. And, and, and instead of surrendering to that powerlessness and really coming and, and really shining with that despair, you kind of see bewilderment, which doesn't really translate very well, especially in the final act of the film. But I really think it's, it's well acted. Um, it's very decently shot. I don't think there's anything spectacular in terms of the production values personally, but well written, uh, well executed in terms of the acting 4.25 out of five. What do you got there, Tim? I thought overall this is a very entertaining and interesting movie. I found it very interesting how they drew parallels between the film and Death of a Salesman, the director and the writer. And by the way, the movie is directed and written by by Asghar Farhadi. And he, a couple years ago in 2011, directed wrote and directed a movie called A Separation, which also received the Academy Award for Best Foreign Language Film. So this guy, I, he knows how to make good movies. I've seen A Separation, and it's a fantastic film. It actually stars the main actor from uh, this film. So he did a very good job at at drawing out the parallels between his film and Death of a Salesman. The core themes are what really brings these two stories together. And like what Matt was saying, the entire movie is not a parallel. Like, they do not share the same themes from beginning to end. But these themes do become more apparent by film's end. In Death of a Salesman, one of the main themes is success. How to be successful. According to Willie Loman, popularity and money equals success. In order to be successful, you have to be well-liked. In order to be successful, you have to have money to be rich. Well, you can't be rich without being well-liked and popular. And Willie Loman feels that he owes it in some way to not only to himself, but to society to enforce this way of thinking. And I think uh, on a surface level, you think he's just being an asshole and enforcing his way of life or his this way of thinking upon everybody just because he thinks it's good. But I think mainly it's to make him feel better because he, you know, this is his way of thinking and this is the code he lived by for a period of time. And by God, is he going to keep 
doing it, because if not, then it's almost like he is lying to himself. In The Salesman, Shahab's character, Ahmad, he he is faced with something. Again, his wife is assaulted, and when he encounters the person who did it, I'm, I don't want to go too much into detail because I want it to uh not it's i mean it's not like a big reveal it's not like a huge surprise but it adds more uh more meat to the film and to his character especially because more of his character definitely comes out during uh these moments but once the audience knows and understands who this character is the assaulter you would think that the husband Ahmad would react differently, but because of his code of the years following it, you know, he doesn't want to lie to himself. He doesn't want to turn away from that code that he carries it out, uh, for example, and it has devastating consequences. So because of all that, to me, it really made the movie. But like what Matt said, it does require a lot of thinking. But some of the Death of a Salesman stuff feels like it should mean more than it actually does. So that is why I give The Salesman 4.25 out of 5. It's a very interesting, entertaining, smart, and incredibly acted film. I think it missed the mark on its themes up until the last 30-35 minutes or so. So 4.25 out of 5, The Salesman. I still think A Man Called Uwe was definitely the better yeah, I I would uh did I, I we we agreed on that one. We we both picked a man called Ove, didn't we? Uh yeah, I think so. Okay, so yes, I still main I still stand by that too. <laughs> All right. Well, then where do you want to go, sir? A United Kingdom or Kong Skull Island? How about Kong Skull Island? All right. Kong Skull Island or how I learned that I was really jaded when it comes to special effects blockbusters. Or Dong, Boner Island. Yeah. All right. So I went and saw this movie last night in XD and 3D and all that kind of shit. Um, and I actually, I took my oldest daughter with me. We had a daddy-daughter date. And we went down, uh, we went and saw uh, Kong Skull Island together. Now, the reason why I say Kong Skull Island or how I learned I was jaded is because had had my daughter not come with me, this movie would have suffered greatly. Okay. Um, I was not a fan of this movie after watching the trailer. I was forced to watch the trailer when I went to go see Logan last week. And, um, and I was like, wow, what's the point in watching this movie? Cause we just, you know, saw the trailer and, I was hearing some initial reports about how, you know, basically it's really good looking, but it's basically a shit movie. Um, and I'm like, yep, that sounds about right. And so I'm like, you know what? I, my expectations were duly lowered, but still, you know, I, I was going to try and be fair. Maybe I'd be, maybe I would be surprised. Maybe I'd be pleasantly surprised. And so I go and I take, I take my oldest daughter with me. Now she, she's nine and a half. And, um, she's definitely still in kid mode. She is not, uh, she, she doesn't watch R rated movies about as heavy handed of a PG 13 movie as she watches is like Avengers. Um, so we, you know, she's not, um, overly grown up. She doesn't have a cell phone, she, you know, none of that kind of stuff. And so 
she also doesn't like scary movies. She's not a big horror fan. Even when we went and saw Goosebumps last year, she was kind of like, ah, and I'm like, calm down. Good Lord. You like these books. So what the hell is wrong? So, so to give you the mindset of my nine and a half year old girl going into this movie, I made sure she watched the trailer and everything, you know, so she was, you know, she knew what it was about. I explained to her, okay, there's going to be really intense monster fights. Are you sure you're going to be okay? And she's like, yep, I'll be great. I was like, okay. This girl was watching Kong Skull Island the way I watched Jurassic Park. And I had to look at her and she grabbed my arm and, you know, I could hear it. And she was literally breathing like this almost the entire movie. She was, I'm like, are you, are you, are you having heart palpitations over there? She's like, it's just a movie, right, dad? I'm like, yep, it's just a movie. And I hear her talking to herself. It's just a movie there. It's not real. It's just, <laughs> and that's how I remember watching Jurassic Park. Now I was like, uh, it was 1993, uh, right when Jurassic Park came out. So, you know, I'm definitely getting on to 15, 16 years old, but. God, I was so into Jurassic Park. I was like edge of my seat and I was like, oh my God, this is so amazing. And I had to tell myself, you know, not because I was scared, but because I was so blown away by, that, by what I was watching. I'm like, holy crap, this is just a movie. And that's what it was like for my daughter. And I was like, you know, maybe I am too hard, a little too hard on special effects today. Um, because while I was not impressed with the obvious blue screen, green screen, fucking everything with this goddamn movie, and I was uh, entirely upset with John C. Riley being completely wasted in this movie, it is a very, very well-executed action movie that understands, it actually understands the three different stories that it's trying to tell simultaneously. And it does that by giving you the island story that's narrated by the John C. Riley character, which is kind of, you know, again, wasted, uh, and then subsequently leads to the Kong fights that you see. We've got the military story, which is punctuated by John Goodman and uh, basically kind of narrated by John Goodman, but executed by Samuel L. Jackson, also leading to the Kong fights that you see. And then we've got the kind of um, idealized good guys you know, version of the story that is narrated by Brie Larson and executed by Tom Hiddleston that leads to the fights, the Kong fights that you see. It was very well executed. I have to say that it made complete sense. Um, and when they left the humans out of it and just focused on the actual monster action... I was pleasantly surprised when they brought the humans back into it. I was kind of like, yeah, this is stupid. Let's not do that. But then they would go back to Kong and Kong would be fighting the skull creatures <laughs> uh, or the skull killers or crushers or whatever the fuck he calls them. And it's good again. 
And then I'm, and I'm, and I'm watching how the movie, it, you know, gets from point A to point B, how it brings the three stories together and then puts it into a straightforward narrative. When it executed it well, and I watched my daughter looking at this movie in the eyes of someone who is really seeing, you know, some of the most intense, suspenseful and, you know, amazing special effects that she's ever seen. I I ended up liking the movie. I truly didn't think I was going to. I thought, what the hell? But I liked this movie. 3.5 out of 5. I'm not too far under you. Uh, I'm giving this one 2.75 out of 5. In fact, I was the one who went to go see it at the movie theater uh, the Thursday night, 10 o'clock showing. Right after I watched it, I quickly tweeted... This was the best looking, one of the best looking, shittiest movies I've seen in a long time. But before I go into my review, I need to tell you real quick. On my way to purchase my ticket at the box office, right when I parked the car and I was getting ready to, you know, you know lock up the car and whatnot and walk to the box office, there's a, a good like four minute walk before you get to the box office. And for some reason, the title Kong Boner Island came to mind, and I just started laughing about it, and as I'm walking to the box office, I just kept thinking of Kong Boner Island, and before I, 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 I knew it, in my head, I was calling the movie Kong Boner Island, and so as I'm getting closer to the box office, I'm saying, don't call it Boner Island, don't call it Boner Island, don't say Boner Island, don't say Boner Island, don't say Boner Island, don't say Boner Island. And then I get up to the the ticket booth girl, and she goes, Hi there, how are you doing? And I'm like, Oh, I'm great, thank you. One for Kong Boner Island, please. And then I slapped my money down and didn't phase me. I totally didn't think I said Boner Island. I thought I said Skull Island, and she just looked at me and went, Oh, okay. And slowly slid my ticket underneath the glass thing and quickly kind of moved her hand away and just ignored me as I sat there semi-embarrassed for calling it Kong Boner Island. Um, I don't know, maybe, maybe you should have been there, but I, I thought it was something. It gave, me, it, it gave me an idea of what to title this episode, at least. Boner Island. So that's fun. Like I said just a second ago, I can't tell you the last time I've seen a movie where I equally really liked it and really did not like it. Absolutely wonderful special effects in this movie. Absolutely wonderful production design in this movie. Great costumes. I mean, technically, it's an astounding film. I thought it was a gorgeously crafted world that Kong lived in. I really like the setting. I really like the Vietnam War era time period. I mean, due to finding such an inhabited huge-ass island with a giant monkey and other creatures living on it, I mean, of course, the movie had to take place during the dawn of satellite photographs and whatnot. But the characters in this movie sucked. These characters were so bad. To me, they didn't make any sense. There is no need for so many featured characters in the movie. They either said stupid things, they either did stupid things, or they were just pointless. And then when the characters started dying more than halfway through the movie, like the core characters, the deaths really didn't do anything for me at all. 
I thought it needed more meaningful monster action, especially the final Skull Crusher fight there at the end. It just kind of happens and then goes away relatively quickly. And I also thought the movie was was somewhat miscast with Tom Hiddleston and Brie Larson. Tom Hiddleston was supposed to be this Vietnam guy, but he sounded like a theater actor Brit. And I love me some Tom Hiddleston and Brie Larson. It just felt like they were there because they would have boosted ticket sales. They needed that, uh, you know, they, they, need, they, needed the, they needed their fans to come and see this movie. It was the same thing with the Asian lady in this movie. She really served no purpose whatsoever but to bring in the Asian audience. So there was a lot of stuff like that, a lot of blatant stuff, obviously trying to craft a franchise between Godzilla and King Kong. So it, and it, to me, it was just way too obvious. So with all that bullshit... I just can't help remembering the wonderful technical aspects of this film. And that's why I give it 2.75 out of 5. I cannot bring myself to say that I liked it. Um, But god damn it, it just looks so good. And the posters for it are phenomenal, I thought. I just think they the, the whole Vietnam War tie-in, they missed the mark on that one as well. But 2.75 out of 5 for me. Right on, right on. Okay, well then that leaves us with A United Kingdom, a 2016 British biographical romantic drama film. Uh, it's directed by Ama Asante, written by Guy Hubbard. It's based on the true life romance between Sir Seretsi Kama and his wife Ruth Williams Kama. Uh, David Oyello and Rosamund Pike portray those characters respectively. Um, all right. So I don't really have a lot to say about this movie. Uh, it's, it's a lovely little movie. Um, and it, it definitely shows the sinister side of imperialism, British imperialism, but, um, and then of course, you know, race and all that kind of stuff. But it's a lovely story, you know, uplifting. All that kind of stuff. Struggles. The struggle is real. Overcoming struggle is real. Yay, happy ending. 3.5 out of 5. I think the one thing that this movie has going for it, it's a true story that I don't think, pretty sure most people have no idea uh, this actually happened. The movie is wonderfully cast. I think the performances are wonderful. It's just the movie itself, the the, the writing of it, the pacing of it, editing is just a little too slow. To me, it just felt like there was a lot of, like, presentations happening. There was a lot of, like, talking to groups of people, you know, speaking your voice, speaking from the heart. There's just a lot of that stuff going on, and it kind of weighed on me by the movie's end. I just wanted it to kind of wrap up. I think nuance really goes a long way. You don't need these speeches. But overall, it's a very good movie. On top of it, it's historically accurate, And the performances are absolutely charming. So I give this one 3.5 out of 5 as well. Well, right on, right on. Okay, well then that brings us to the end of the movies. Next week's movies are going to be T2, Train Spotting, and the latest incarnation of Disney's Beauty and the Beast. So without further ado, I believe it's down to the spiel, right, sir? 
Spiel on. All right. Well, the music you've been listening to, as always, has been brought to us by our music partners, Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. As for us, we are, of course, the SLS Cast, and you can find us at SLScast.com. You can send us an email to the show at SLScast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLScast. You can follow me, this is Matt, on Twitter at Nitwit1234. You can also climb aboard that information superhighway and track down Tim on Twitter if that's your heart's desire. And don't forget, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio, as well as look us up on the old SoundCloud. So until next week, this is Matt that's saying thanks to Rosamund Pike. I get to say this. Nothing can teach you what it's like to work on a film set, and the best education there can be for an actor is to walk up the street and observe human nature. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>